Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. The book of Acts, chapter 27 this morning. One of the fantastic chapters in the Bible, chapter 27 and 28. We'll only get up to verse 12 this morning. And we will stand and take verses 9 through 11. If you have your Bibles open or not, please stand for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 27. And we'll take verses 9 to 11. Now, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by things spoken by Paul. Please be seated. Unsaved shipmates, that's um, the topic for this morning's consideration here in Acts chapter 27. And before I get into the chapter itself and the section that we have this morning... I want to talk a little bit about these unsaved shipmates that we have in life, uh, following the metaphor or using as a metaphor, um, sailing on a ship. My life, has, uh, since I've been a pastor, is now mostly linear. I go in a straight line from my home to wherever Christians are. But most of you find yourselves in secular circles. You are around people of the world who are engulfed with a culture that is hostile to Christ, contrary to Christ, and even defiant, brazenly committing uh, sins that they want to jam down the throats of others. And uh, we have loved ones. Many of you have loved ones that have fallen for this or fallen into this. Uh, I can't imagine going to work on a Friday and leaving work and saying, okay, Billy, I'll see you Sunday, and then Sunday shows up, um, Monday, and Monday shows up and he's dressed, he's in a dress. I I can't imagine anything like that. But many of you have to put up with this stuff. And how do you do this? You go through life on this ship with these shipmates. What is the Christian to do? They are proud of the very things that they should be shameful of. They've worked hard to remove the shame out of sin. And they want to go to heaven but live like hell at the same time. God's not going to have any of it. I saw one where they were chanting, we're here, we're queer, we're not going anywhere. You are going somewhere. You are. All of us are. Where you go, you have a say-so in that whether you go to heaven or you suffer the wrath of God. And to further the sin, many of them try to behave as though these uh, immoral sins are somehow applauded by Christ, claiming that Christ loves them. That would be counterfeiting agape love with human sentiment. And it is another lie out of hell, Satan does two things all the time, with, without change. He lies and he steals. He'll steal a soul. He'll lie to anyone. He is, uh, has, he is the epitome of a shameless 
being. And if you're going to listen to him, then the consequences are going to be real. To suppose that somehow when the wrath of God falls on those who have defied, defied him, brazenly defied him, to somehow think that uh, God still loves them at that moment is to be um, removed from what the scripture, scripture teaches. God is, is certainly going to be hurt and disappointed, but his wrath is real. Jesus said, the wrath of God abides on them. You can't fool around with the love of God. And we Christians are supposed to be the whistleblowers, his instruments, to tell those, listen, um, you're blind to your sins and you are deaf to God's voice. That comes with a price. And Satan the crook, he doesn't care about you. He just wants to steal your soul. And if someone was to say, well... I'm insulted by the things you're saying. Well, my intention is not to insult you, but I, I have to say that uh, these are facts, and facts insult the guilty. Uh, people will be in a courtroom guilty of a crime, and they're just so insulted and angered by the audacity of people holding them accountable for the fact of their crime. And so how we behave as Christians on these seas of life with the unsaved, even with the Antichrist, or people who are Antichrist as shipmates, it, it matters. Uh, what does the scripture teach us? Well, the first thing it teaches us about sailing through life with unbelievers is to not be ashamed of our faith. So again, if you go in a workplace and you've now got someone who's insisting you honor their newly found pronouns and, and just the, uh, you know, the I hate Jesus flags and all the things that they're throwing at us, the, the response is found in Romans 1, chapter 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. If a person is offended by that, then they're offended by that. But that's where we have to stand. God is not ashamed of Christianity. In Hebrews 11, in the 16th verse, when he speaks about, uh, Paul speaks about uh, the things that the righteous goes through, he says, but now they... Desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So let's remember not to be ashamed, be firm. Uh, hopefully we're not uh, indecent, rude. Hopefully we give our answers with meekness and respect, even though we are being uh, constantly provoked. The cross of Christ is about sin, and it is the very thing that many sinners want to have nothing to do with. The unsaved tend to undervalue the cross, and at the same time, they underestimate the consequence of sin. And we're, again, going to be used all the time by God to, to come against this, hopefully to save souls. Memorizing scripture will be a big part of your success as witnesses of Christ. When you memorize, when you have a, a larger library of memorized scriptures, an archive of scriptures, you have more for the Holy Spirit to draw from. And he will draw from it. So I encourage you to stay up on your devotional time, continue to serve the Lord, don't give up, on the struggle, 
and get Scripture into you. Now, all of what I've been saying, hopefully, has is played out for us in this section we have this morning in Acts 27. And as I mentioned, these last two chapters of Acts, uh, they're loaded with metaphor and allegory, and the, the points just fly off the page for us. It speaks to our life. In this section, we find stubbornness of others, subsequent storms because of that subsequent, uh, because of that stubbornness. We find shipwreck, serpents, hardship, calamity, things going haywire. We find kindness and care from the unsaved to believers. We find courage, nausea. We find desperation, trust, betrayal, close calls, and unsinkable faith. All in this one chapter. And the troubles and hardships that Paul faces in this chapter are not coming from the Jews and Gentiles. They're not coming so much from people, but the poor judgment of people and creation gone wild. Paul will use shipwreck later when he writes to Timothy uh, concerning uh, life, uh, avoiding shipwreck in life. But he also tells Timothy, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Well, that's what I want to be because these believers on this ship are going to be enduring hardship right alongside of those who are unsaved, who are unbelievers. And sharing Paul's ministry on this ship voluntarily are Luke and Aristarchus, and there may be others. But they, these are Gentile converts. And uh, we have almost you know, over 250 people, 276 souls on this ship that uh, will end up um, struggling to survive. One of the um, characters on this ship is uh, Julius, the Roman centurion, uh, an admirable man. The, the ship's captain, the ship's owner will come across them, the Roman soldiers, the ship's crew. There's an interesting interaction between the two, whereas the ship's crew is trying to sneak off the ship, which would leave the ship uh, without sailors, without skilled sailors. And the Roman soldiers, of course, act to keep them on the ship. So let's look at the first verse. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. Now, it's about 60, uh, 60 years after the birth of Christ. Nero is the current Caesar. Now, he has not yet turned completely evil. He will later and begin the persecution of the church. He was actually a pretty good uh, Caesar for in his, the early years of his rule. But where it says, and it was decided that we should sail to Italy, who decided? Well, it really wasn't Festus. Festus actually brought about this mess, uh, contrib contributed to it. Of course, it was God. Psalm 37, verse 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Well, these steps, this, this shipwreck that's coming is ordered by the Lord. And there are many benefits to examining just how all this came about. Paul long desired to go to Rome. Well, now he's on his way, and it will turn out to be the hard way. 
he, we never hear him complain about this. He just stays focused on what he's supposed to do, and that is be unashamed of Christ and preach the gospel because it is the power of God. And so he, it says here in verse 1 that we should sail to Italy. Now, the pronoun we indicates that Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, Luke, the beloved physician, as Paul referred to him years later, uh, he is uh, with them. That is that why it says we. Uh, Paul will write to Timothy close to Paul's death. He will say, only Luke is with me. He sticks with him to the end. And Luke, he knew God assigned him to Paul. And he lived his life that way. He was very comfortable in the shadow of Paul. That's a calling. Paul got all the attention. Uh, Barnabas had, was in that role for a while, too. Uh, you know, to know where, where God has you is, is not only liberating, it is empowering. To know this is my post. This is what I'm assigned to in my life. And whether it, it develops or changes or, or I just remain where I am, it is an honor to serve God uh, in, in your calling. Luke and Aristarchus, who's also with them, they get to share the shipwreck experience with Paul, comes with the territory. As a physician, Luke, uh, he will be there when Paul is, when they, when they survive the shipwreck, Paul will be bitten by a serpent. And Luke, the physician, will be useless, powerless to do anything about it. It will be the Lord that will make the difference. These, <clears throat> these were the first Christians. The book of Acts tells us about the first Christians and how they conducted business. When Jesus said, occupy until I return, we see them doing this. And in so, they are bringing with them multitudes into the kingdom of God. And Christians have been continuing that to this day. As I speak, there are churches around the world where Christians are, are preaching and people are going to be saved this morning and others will be built up in the faith. Now Luke, of course keeping a journal of these experiences, he writes about this with vivid recollection. The adventures from Antioch all the way to Corinth, and then back from Corinth all the way back to Antioch, from Antioch to Jerusalem, and now from Jerusalem to Rome. It's over 4,000 miles, hard miles. They delivered, it says here in verse 1, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion. Well, here, here are the shipmates, the prisoners, the sailors, the Roman centurion, the, the owner of the ship, and some other passengers that want to also go to Rome. The centurions in the New Testament are always shown to be admirable men, officers and gentlemen, and, and indecisive when they when time for them to move. We'll see that uh, when Julius orders his troops to uh, not allow the sailors to abandon ship. Uh, Julius, the centurion, centurion, by the end of this voyage, he will be less a guard of Paul as prisoner, and he will be more of a protector of Paul the man. Now, you know that's preaching going on. You know he got to know the character of Paul. And at one point, he, when he tells the Roman soldiers not to kill the prisoners, lest they escape, it says he did this because of Paul. And so, again, we're looking at these unsaved shipmates, and what are the first Christians doing with them? 
Um, Luke could not write it all. He couldn't get it all down. He, he got the essentials down for us. And so his orders, when he gives them, they're, con- you know, well, his orders from Rome. Let's go back to that for a moment. His orders from Rome were concise and they were very clear. And that is to bring the prisoners to Rome, no more, no less. And he's going to achieve that. And even that, when we get to Paul coming, you know, when he puts sandals on the ground in Italy, uh, even that is going to be loaded with ministry for us as, as Christians. Well, uh, again, initially he guarded Paul as prisoner. And I want this to stand out to us. In the end, he protects him as a friend. That's ministry. That's Christianity in action, one element of Christianity. Now, verse 2, it says, So entering the ship of Adramithium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. Now, this is a Turkish ship. They won't stay on this. They're leaving Sidon, which is uh, you know right next to Israel, and, and they're sailing across on the Mediterranean on this Turkish ship. Now, this man, Aristarchus, he was with Paul almost as long as as Luke. And these character studies uh, are preserved for us to study, to to benefit from. He was roughed up at Ephesus, a riot that was started because of Paul's influence. The whole city was in an uproar. He accompanies Paul to Jerusalem because he leaves Ephesus. He goes to Antioch with him. He comes with Paul to Jerusalem, bringing the offerings to the struggling Christians there in Jerusalem. He continues with Paul here to Rome. Uh, They're going to suffer shipwreck together. And then he's going to attend to Paul while Paul is in Rome. And when Paul writes the Colossian letter, he mentions Aristarchus. He does also when he writes to Philemon. And so, again, he, like Luke, served and suffered with Paul, uh, at least uh, through the Colossian letter, and likely to the, to the, as close to the end as possible. In verse 3 now, And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly, and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. So, again, they have not yet shoved off from Sidon, which is right next to Israel, uh, there on the shore of the Mediterranean. And Julius, uh, what a courageous and kind act to say, you know, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to let you go. Because if Paul gets away, then Julius will have to suffer whatever punishment Paul would have suffered. And this is why uh, the Roman guards were no nonsense. If they thought you were going to escape, they would kill you. <laughs> Better to present a dead body than nobody. And uh, this, this was the, the days they lived in. A true Christian charm at work from Paul to this commander of soldiers. And those centurions, most, especially if they were stationed in, in Israel, uh, they're tough guys. They had put up a lot of stuff. Uh, from assassins, from uprisings, uh, and uh, just keeping the Roman Empire in charge of as much civilization as Rome could get its fingers on. And so this Julius, uh, here he is with this, again, he's a courageous man and he's a kind man. You, do not ha- you can be a tough guy and still be kind. Uh, verse 4, when we had... Put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. Well, these are romantic words if you are a 
a, a seagoing lover, if you love to be out on the sea and to be underway, it's like, yeah, you know, this is this so it's an adventure. There's nothing boring about the ocean. Well, if you, you can be stuck at sea that, or stuck off the coast of some place just sitting there. Yeah, that could be a drag. But the sea is exciting. And um, uh, they're, they're on the move for God. At least Paul and his friends are. The other shipmates, of course, we don't know the details. Uh, they're en route. Paul is en route to give sermons. He's en route to save souls. He is en route to write at least four more epistles that we have. The Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. But it says here in verse 4, because the winds were contrary, ominous words, shipwreck awaits them. It awaits them all. They don't know it yet. They're just on this Turkish ship, and they're just thinking, okay, the winds are contrary. But it's 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 setting the 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 pace for what's coming. Even in the will of God, things will not go smoothly. It is surprising, but it's understandable sometimes when you find a Christian going through hardship and you're surprised. How could God let do this? And how could this happen? That's understandable. If you're in the hot seat, you know, it just, that's, those are feelings that surge to the top. But it doesn't mean we need to be enslaved by them or give in to them. These contrary winds will surge into violent winds. Paul knew the sea. And Luke, as again vividly recalling these events, uh, he indicates that Paul had bad feelings about all this, as the story goes. He's going to point out Paul Paul had a sinking feeling about some of this. Verse 5, And when we had sailed over the sea which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, the city of Lycia. Now, Lycia and Myra, they were ports of the imperial Egyptian grain fleet. Uh, Egypt <clears throat> was the breadbasket for Rome. Much They weren't the only ones, but they were the major ones. And coming from the Nile Delta, they would the ships would come out with their grains to, to go to Rome. And, and those ships were uh, under the authority of of Rome. Even if they were privately owned, once you got on that contract, uh, it was a Roman vessel. And uh, again, even in the will of God, things will not go smoothly. These contrary winds will um, insist on becoming the the dominant force in their lives when they're on that vessel. Uh, So, uh, verse 6 now. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. So they changed ships, uh, and uh, this is going to be the ship that's going to suffer the shipwreck, not not the other one. Alexandria, uh, an Alexandrian ship, that was that Egyptian port in the city of Alexandria in Egypt. And uh, again, here we have 276 souls on this ship, verse 7, when we, sailed, when we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off of Nindus, the winds not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone. Foreboding indicators continue. Now, Paul, he knows the sea. He knows the Mediterranean Sea. 
He has got to be getting sick feelings at this point. He has seen this play before. The wind not permitting us to proceed. How metaphoric is that for life? Resistance in life. Interrupting. Getting in the way of us trying to reach our destination. Maybe it's a simple, basic Christian destination that you're going to be patient on the road today. And the winds will be contrary to you. Because the other drivers will be on the road also. So, uh, So common is resistance in life that when there is no resistance, we're suspicious. What's going on here? Things have been going too, too well, too long. Uh, such is life. And God does not excuse us from this. He, he calls us to operate in the midst of these things. So they wanted to go northwest, but the winds were against them. And again, Luke writes as though it was yesterday, because he kept that journal. Verse 8 Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. The menacing winds are worsening. Uh, the Fair Havens, uh, they will come to wish they stayed there. Uh, Lycia is a small and boring village town, and the crew would not want to be there, and that will come up again. Verse 9, now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because of the fast which already was already over, Paul advised them. We'll pause mid-sentence. This is a time stamp, the fast. This is Yom Kippur, around uh, the end of September. It's probably the first, about the 1st of October at this point. This was not the best time to be in the open sea at, in that, at that time in history. Mid-September to mid-November was highly risky uh, to be out on the open waters. And by November, only fools would venture out into the deep. Paul, it says here, advised them, and this is remarkable, that he was respected enough to have his input offered. I mean, the cook's not going to come upstairs and say, hey, this is what I think we should do. Yet Paul gets to ring in. He's a prisoner of Rome. What does that say about him? What does that teach us about being a Christian around those who are unsaved? Some of them, various degrees. Many times, of course, many decent, unsaved people. Many of them can be far more likely than some Christians. Uh, They can be noble people in the world that want nothing to do with Christ. That does not cause us to stand down and not want to give them the gospel. Well, Paul advised them, uh, which again is is just remarkable that they would even listen. Verse 10, saying, men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of cargo and ship, but also our lives. Was Paul beginning to question the promise of God to get in front of Caesar? Was this great Christian man having second thoughts about what God put on his heart? If so, he's just like us. The only one that would not have a second thought about the will of God, the word of God, would have been Jesus Christ. Paul was a man like us. As gallant a servant as he was, he was still a prisoner of his own flesh that he had to fight every day. But he speaks up. Knowing the mariners would risk going to sea because they wanted to get to Rome. 
You know, this that part about people where you, you just got to push forward sometimes. Well, that can backfire, and it's going to backfire on them. Now, because they were not believers, Paul was without spiritual influence. He lost some leverage. So, <clears throat> if these were all Christians, and Paul said, I think we should stay here, there's a very good chance they would stay. But they're not Christians. They admire him, <clears throat> evidently, letting him in, but not enough. They're going to learn to admire him a lot more by the time this is over. And uh, his warning was not without reason, and it was not without experience. He brought those two factors together. They were not the only ones who knew the sea this time of year. He knew sailing, and he knew sinking, too. This would be his fourth shipwreck. One of the shipwrecks, he says, that he spent a night and a day in the sea. He's probably holding on, you know, the wooden ships back then, wood floats, fortunately, for mariners, overboard. And uh, he, he probably hanging onto a piece of wood or treading. Uh, he knows the sea. Highly experienced in Mediterranean travel. And, you know, when you go through something, uh, it's, it, it can have its various levels of trauma that are involved. You know, blows to the mind that stick with you. And he would have remembered that, you know, I've been in this spot before. And I remember the last time we did something like this, uh, I got wet in the middle of the sea. And so uh, he would later, as I mentioned earlier, use shipwreck as a metaphor for destroyed travel with Christ, a ruined walk. I don't mean a stumble and a, you know, a backslide. I mean apostasy. First Timothy chapter 1 Verse 19, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Well, he could use that statement with a little bit more authority, most, authority than most of us. It is not a bad idea to listen to the man who listens to God. Uh, and here Paul was. Telling them this is not going to go good for all of us. Verse 11, nevertheless, the centurion was more interested, pardon me, let me read that again. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. You know, I just noticed we're almost done. I can slow down. <laughs> I can take my time. These, here in verse 11, are the unsaved shipmates, and this is their decision. As I mentioned, the ship being part of the imperial grain fleet, therefore, Julius, the centurion, not the helmsman, who is the pilot slash captain, and not the owner of the ship, were ranking officials. The Roman centurion is the ranking official. It's his final call. So he listens to the captain, he listens to the owner, and he's persuaded by them. And he doesn't listen to Paul. Doesn't mean he didn't like Paul. Uh, he's a man of decision, clearly. We'll see that again. Uh, but experts in majorities are not automatically right. And the Bible, you know, if, if majorities were right, then they would have been on the ark and not Noah. But uh, when the spies go into the promised land, first off, they were, they were to spy out the land. They weren't to give their opinion. 
uh, when Joshua sends, 40 years later, when he sends spies into the land, he doesn't ask their opinion. He's not going to let that happen again. But there, the ten spies were wrong, and only two were correct. You know, we say to ourselves, after all, how could so many people be wrong at the same time? Well, very easily, they could be wrong at the same time. Imperial Japan was wrong at the same time. Nazi Germany was wrong at the same time. And just look at the culture we're in now. This Jesus-hating culture. Whether they verbalize that or not, the culture is most certainly anti-Christ. And to say that I can, again, live like a devil and still be treated like a saint is from hell. It is not uh, God teaching that. It's Satan teaching that. And uh, it is his masterpiece. He's going to develop this masterpiece so that by the time Antichrist steps into the picture, he'll have a world waiting for him with open arms. He'll have all the military, the politicians, the businesses. He'll have everything. Everything an Antichrist wanted to have and more. Well, here the majority is wrong. It does us well to remember that. Uh, Even in Christian circles, the majority can be wrong. Just look at the Dark Ages and what the Roman Catholic Church did to Europe. Uh, Then by the things spoken by Paul. Let me put that back in context. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. You have a choice. You can listen to Darwin or you can listen to Moses. That's what we have here. You can listen to the godly man who has experience also and reason. Or you can go with those who have other interests. And their interest is to get that. If, if not get to Rome, get to some city somewhere where they can unload their cargo. Well, they're going to unload their cargo in the deep blue sea. Uh, that it won't go according to plan. And I think it's good for we Christians, if, especially if you go to the universities or the workplace. You're going to either listen to Darwin, who was a nut, incidentally, or you're going to listen to Moses. And we now know that Darwinism, known as evolution, not even possible, scientifically speaking. (laughs) They won't abandon it. Uh, Because the alternative to them is God. And so, as I've been mentioning the last few times up here, they're looking to other uh, areas. Don't worry, Antichrist will have something for everybody, except Christians, except the Jews. Uh, anyway, good as, as far as good goes, he'll have evil for him. The helmsman knew sailing, but he didn't know the future. And Paul had enough to be able to say the future is not going to be good for us. As I mentioned, that sinking feeling. About five years earlier, he had sent a letter to the Christians at Corinth, his second letter. And he said these time, uh, three times, I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. Now, that could be a fourth time, but it's probably related to the three. In journeys often, in perils of waters. He brings up water again. The three shipwrecks, the night in the sea, in perils of water, in perils of robbers. Incidentally, uh, there are parts of that world, especially the Aegean seaside, 
where there were pirates, uh, a lot of them. Many of the people in, uh, on the coast moved inland to get away from the pirates. Well, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea. Well, that might be the pirates there. In perils amongst false brethren. Danger, you could say, if you want to swap out the word peril. We don't use that word, you know, I... You know, I'm afraid there's going to be a perilous line at the store. We, you know, we use the word danger. And so, he, again, he's saying in, in danger of waters, danger of robbers, danger in the sea, danger amongst false brethren, which are worse than unbelievers. Men do not suffer like this man suffered for fiction. He suffered these things because he met Jesus Christ face to face. He tells us about that. Had he not met Jesus Christ face to face, uh, he would have made that clear and he would not have lived this type of life. Now you can meet Christ eye to eye, face to face, or you can meet him face to face in the spiritual way, which is believers have done over the centuries. By faith, we know the Lord Christ. We haven't seen Jesus face to face, but we will. Which is so amazing when Peter, for example, made his way through the Western, uh, through, through the ancient world, the Roman Empire. He started rubbing elbows with Christians who were ready to die for Christ. The difference is that Peter lived and walked with Christ for almost three years. He knew Christ face to face. He knew him according to the flesh. He knew him in his glorified body. But the people that Peter was now rubbing elbows with, they didn't know Jesus that way. And yet their love was just as strong as his. How'd that happen? Well, a God who can create the universe can create a relationship with me, with anybody. But it's got to be on his terms. I think it's very remarkable that when Peter would go to a church, he'd find Christians singing to an unseen, invisible Lord that to Peter was once visible with equal enthusiasm. Quite remarkable. Uh, helps us to step up in our faith and not be ashamed of Christ. Maybe it will help us if we understand that fear of what might happen can be confused with shame. And if we can make the distinction between those two, say, okay, I'm not going to be ashamed of Christ, and I am afraid of what might happen. But I've made the choice that because I'm not ashamed, I'm going to take whatever happens. In this case, probably the only two people that we know about on this ship that could have stayed at Sidon or at any of these places was Luke and Aristarchus. They weren't prisoners of Rome. Uh, they could just say, you know what, Paul, it's been fun. But that, sh that ship is doomed. That's not what they did. They didn't care. What was going to happen to the ship? long as they were with Paul. That was their ministry. These are the first Christians. We should admire them. These are the lessons. These stories are here for us, for our edification. So when we get petty, which we can do very quickly, when we get our feelings hurt, which happens often, Christ stands there and says, what are you going to do now? Are you going to flee? Are you going to run? Are you going to take your licks? Because you know where I have you. 
Well, that's true for a congregant or for a pastor. Uh, a pastor could say, you know, I'm done. I'll, I'll, I'm not going to put up with this. And so can a person. But that's not Christ. What does the Lord say? We are supposed to, you know, the word, the name Israel, it means to be governed by God. God is the controlling influence in your life. Well, for us, God comes further into view in Christ. We have a better view of how Christ wants us to be like him, Christ's likeness. Those two men, Luke and Aristarchus, they got it. They can get it. We can get it too. These things are not given to us to say, look, David can drop a giant with a stone, but you can't. That's not what Christ says. Well, coming back to verse 12 now. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. So they wanted to get to Phoenix, um, but it's not going to work. They did not, again, want to say at the Fair Havens because there's no saloon there, no nightlife, nothing to do. Well, that's not, you know, uh, that, that is understandable, not something to dismiss. What do you do with 276 people for, you know, three or four months? Uh, you know, you've got to watch the prisoners still. You can't let them get away. So, of course, there would not be incentive to stay. But it, was, it would prove to be, had Paul not been on this ship, they all would have died. Now, isn't that something to think about? Here you are on a ship of life with unsaved shipmates. Some of them will go to hell without you. Hopefully that we have a role in, in, in the salvation of other souls in some way. Even if it's, it's vicarious. Even if, well, the church is, is strengthening Christians to, and other Christians are getting them saved because of the benefits of belonging to a good body in Christ. Well, you share in that if you share in the labor of that, that ministry. When Paul was making converts, Aristarchus and Luke shared in that. They were his helpmates. Well, they wanted to get out of there, and they did. It says... The majority um, advised to set sail from there also. And we talked about the majority not automatically being right. They put it up to a vote. And uh, the minority was the correct party. Remember that in the workplace, in the university, in the neighborhood, wherever you find yourself. Everybody's against Christ but you. You're the, you're the minority. Stand tough. Uh, the Elisha, the, Elisha the prophet asked that God would open the eyes of his servant so that the servant could see that there were more with them than there were against them. You have legions of angels around you. Not so that you can get the, you know, the house that you want and the car you want. and They're not there to make you rich. You'll have to go to Joel Olstein to be blessed like that. They're there to help you as a minister of Christ do the will of God. And it may involve shipwreck. Many times Christians go down with the ships. But the will of the Lord is done because God has a better place for us. 
if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest, northwest, and winter there. Just 45 miles away. That's all it was. Seemed to make perfect sense. But Paul said, may we stay here. The sea is a beast. And he knew it. And so the invitation of Christ to come to him, to his church, it's not an invitation to a funeral. Some people kind of think it that way. They may not articulate it, but they're thinking, man, if I become a Christian, what am I going to have to give up? What about what you're going to get? What Christ has is better than anything this world has to offer. Paul and company as I mentioned earlier, would be looking to witness throughout their time on this ship and give this invitation. Again, not to a funeral, to a banquet. That's the invitation. To a supper, to a feast, maker of all the universe. That's why we come into church and we can sing songs to an unseen Christ as though he's right there with us and we love to do it. And that's why, again, I encourage you younger Christians, and if you older ones are not schooled in this, Look at some of the hymns. How, there's so much doctrine packed into those hymns. Uh, um, what's the one we did sing? Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, Let Me Hide. Uh, just an incredible song that has survived over 200 years. There's so much doctrine in that. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. Uh, salvation is not a work of man. It is a gift of God. So I'll close with this verse from Revelation 19, verse 9. John, this is John the Apostle. He's pretty much seen what's going to happen in the Great Tribulation period that is still on the calendar. It's still future for humanity. And we are ramping up to it at an accelerated pace. And, and so the angel is, is showing John how things are going to end. Then he said to me, write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. The invitation to Christ is not an invitation to a funeral. Though it is the old flesh dying, yes, that part of it is correct. But it is an invitation to a banquet in heaven. No one should miss it. Many are called, few are chosen, and they are not chosen because they will not receive the invitation. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, a lot to think about traveling through this life. Let's not, may, we, may you not find us devaluing the metaphors. They are rich with instruction, with the things we need to be exhorted by to sail through this life unashamed of our salvation, not ashamed of our Savior, ready to stand up to any storm that comes our way in Christ. We ask as believers that you always find us desiring to be more like Christ. If you've been listening this morning and you've never opened your heart to Christ, then you have a chance right now I think it would be very unfortunate for a man to know the way to heaven and not invite you to come join. If you would like to come to this banquet, 
you have to you have to let yourself admit that you are a sinner. That means you've fallen short of what God wants. You've broken his commandments. You've gone against what his will is. And it separates you from him. Sin separates humans from God. It has the power to separate us forever from God. We call that hell. Then there's that heaven that even if we stumble and get tripped up once we've received Christ, we still have a place at that table that awaits us because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, the penalty of sin. If you'd like to receive Christ and make this prayer with me and mean it, if you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your laws. I ask you to forgive me. I come to you. There's no one else who died for me to take my punishment. There's no one else strong enough to bring me through this life into the kingdom of heaven. I give my life to you right here, right now, and ask that from this day forward, you would be not only the Savior of my soul, but the Lord over my life through good times and bad times. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.